This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the uh, web at goodjudgepod.com. Wade, you know, every time we start one of these podcasts, I'm reminded of a scene from one of my favorite movies, that, that great movie, Bull Durham, you know, where they... They call out the pitcher that they call Wild Thing, and the first batter comes up, and the catcher says to the batter, I wouldn't dig in too deep if I were you. I have absolutely no idea where this is going. Anyway, so are you having a flashback to that particular reference as it relates to this podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So today's podcast deals with the UCCJEA, the Uniform Child Custody Jurisdiction and Enforcement Act. Wade serves in a circuit that is on the border with South Carolina and also has a large military base, Fort Gordon. So he sees more of these types of cases than I do. I've had a few, but he sees several each year, and he's going to take the lead on this topic. We recognize that this topic is another one of those that's probably not going to find itself on anyone's top 10 list of most downloaded podcasts. But if a judge or lawyer finds themselves in the middle of a case involving the UCCJEA, We wanted to give everyone that might listen a quick reference guide that can help them maneuver the issue. That's really true. We're not going to try to produce law review articles in these podcasts. We're trying to cover some contingencies, but not all contingencies that might arise in this type of case. Instead, what we're really trying to do is to give you a starting point and an overview of the topic. Remember, we're posting an outline or similar reference guide on our website, goodjudgepod.com. You can find the outline there if you did not catch a citation while you were driving or doing something else. So, Tane, let's talk about the enthralling topic of the UCCJEA. And all, in all seriousness, though, if you find yourself in the middle of one of these, it can be a little complex and unusual, and the UCCJEA can be a little unwieldy. So just to tell you a little bit about the UCCJEA, it's a uniform act that's been adopted in 49 states, the District of Columbia, Guam, and the Virgin Islands. So, Tane, you want to guess which state has not adopted the UCCJEA, at least as of 2017? Um, Don't read the paper. Okay, um, we'll go on, and I'll tell you it's Massachusetts. Huh, okay, I would have guessed maybe Alabama, Louisiana, I don't know. Well, they have not adopted the UCCJEA, and this podcast is just going to be full of those sort of fun facts that you can put in your next trivia game involving questions involving the UCCJEA. So, Wade, what's a situation where a judge might encounter the UCCJEA? Imagine a case where a plaintiff has filed for divorce in Georgia. The plaintiff has resided in Georgia for the requisite amount of time, six months, but the defendant and their mutual child reside in another state and have for more than six months. The defendant is personally served. Now, I have jurisdiction over the plaintiff, to be clear, the plaintiff, because they have been a resident for at least six consecutive months. I have subject matter jurisdiction over the divorce, but I do not 
have jurisdiction over the defendant or any issues relating to child custody. But what about the Domestic Relations Long Arm Act? If the defendant resided in Georgia during the marriage, don't you have jurisdiction over the defendant in that situation? You do. OCGA 910-91-6 is frequently referred to as the Domestic Relations Long Arm Act. But even if I have personal jurisdiction over the defendant, that does not necessarily mean that I have jurisdiction over the child custody issues. When you have children and issues of parents living in separate states, the court should immediately pause, I guess, hit the brakes, and look at the UCCJEA before just assuming that the court has jurisdiction over the child custody matters involved in that particular case. So where can someone find the UCCJEA in the code? I should probably already know that, but... I don't know. You kind of sound like maybe somebody who would like to know the answer to that question. The UCCJEA is codified at OCGA 19940 through 104. I'm going to be honest with you now. The statute is organized a little differently, a little oddly, and so I'm going to explain as we proceed. So let's talk about this concept of home state. The most important concept for the judge to know when dealing with a UCCJEA case is the concept of home state. 19.9.41.7, subsection 7, defines the term home state, but statutory language can be really difficult to dissect on a podcast, can it, Tane? Yeah, that's terrible for podcasts. So the best way to understand the concept of home state, rather than read a, a statutory definition, is to look at the six-month window of time just before the present action was filed. The judge should look at the facts and determine where each parent and the child resided during that six-month period. Don't, don't be careful. Don't make assumptions because sometimes children and parents don't all live in the same place, and they might be in three separate places. So just understand that if all three, the child and each parent, have all resided in the same state, this is easy. That, that state is the home state. Wade, does the UCCJEA apply to non-parents or only to parents? The statute specifically notes that it applies to parents and, quote, persons acting as a parent, whatever that means. Actually, it's, again, another statutory definition. Just understand that for the purposes of this podcast, it's going to be so much easier if we talk about this whole thing in terms of child and parent Just know that it also applies to persons acting as a parent and not only to biological or legal parents. So you were talking about the home state under the UCCJEA. There are cases where the parties have not resided in any single state for the six-month period before the case was filed. What then? Well, that's true. There are times when the parents did not live together, the child did not live with either parent, and all other sort of scenarios. As we work through the statute, you're going to see the statute anticipates all of these scenarios where they're together, they're apart, they're in the same state or separate states. So in effect, the UCCJEA was designed to ensure that two different states are not litigating issues of child custody simultaneously, and it tries to eliminate all of the legal headaches that could happen if the two states enter orders that are contradictory. Tane, 19961 provides that except in an emergency situation, the Georgia court can make an initial child custody determination if Georgia's the home state and at least one parent continues to reside in Georgia. That provision really makes sense. I mean, someone has to be living in Georgia or parties could just roam the country looking to file a custody action, even where there's no connection with that particular state. Remember I told you that the UCCJEA addresses some of those strange factual scenarios 
where the parties did not reside in any particular state for that six-month window. Yes. Well, that scenario is also addressed in 19961. Sorry, I didn't know you were going to answer the question. Kind of rhetorical. A state can make an initial custody determination when it is the home state, but a court can also make an initial determination of custody where no other state is the home state, by definition, or where that other state has declined to exercise jurisdiction. And again, that's that inconvenient form thing we're going to talk, talk about in a minute. In the second scenario where a state can exercise jurisdiction in an initial custody decision, there has to be evidence that the child has a substantial connection with the state. In this provision of the UCCJEA, dealing with initial custody determination is important as we go through the jurisdiction to modify an order. So, Tane, once a custody order has been entered now, so now we've already got an order from some state, there are different rules concerning the jurisdiction to modify that order, correct? Yes. Uh, OCGA section 19-9-62 provides that once a court has entered a custody order, that court has exclusive continuing jurisdiction over the custody matter until A, a court of the issuing state determines that it is no longer a convenient forum or it is established that neither the child nor either of the parents continue to permanently reside in the issuing state. So wait, this is different than a contempt action for not complying with the court's order. The issuing court always has the authority to enforce its order, but you are addressing situations when another court can modify a prior order, correct? That's right, Tane. You know that there are cases that say an issuing court always has continuing authority to enforce its orders, but that authority is not exclusive. This talked about exclusive continuing jurisdiction. Just in a contempt, you always have the authority, so it continues, but it's not always exclusive, meaning other courts could potentially enforce your order. If a court obtains jurisdiction to modify a custody order, it can also conceivably obtain the jurisdiction to enforce that same order. But within the UCCJEA, this section, 19962, specifically pro provides that a court that issues a custody order retains exclusive continuing jurisdiction over that custody matter unless one of those two scenarios occurs. Either the issuing court declines to exercise jurisdiction or it is proven that neither the child nor either parent continues to reside in that issuing state. Or neither the parent nor either child. Never mind. Did I, um, say, did I say it wrong? Yeah, I don't I mean, know. Just, it's like double or triple negative or positive or something. It's just tomato. Two negatives make a positive, It's right? tomato, tomato. Um, the UCCJEA says that if the issuing court decides it no longer is the appropriate forum for litigation of a modification action, it can decline to exercise jurisdiction. That is usually referred to as the inconvenient forum provision. Deciding whether a court is an inconvenient forum is something that the court that issued the prior order has to decide. That court can give jurisdiction to another court, but the other court cannot take jurisdiction from the issuing court. Let me say that again. The issuing court can give jurisdiction to another court or decline to continue to assert jurisdiction, but the other court cannot take jurisdiction away from the issuing court. You know, the UCCJEA also recognizes that there are times that the parties have all left the state, the issuing state. 
and that there is no case or proceeding pending in that issuing state, the one that at first issued that order. If an action is filed and everyone agrees that neither the child nor either parent continues to reside in the issuing state, the other state has now obtained, the new state, I guess, has now obtained home state jurisdiction and can assume jurisdiction to modify that custody order without any reference to the desires of the issuing state. So, Tane, we also have one other place in, in, in that you could obtain jurisdiction over a child custody matter that potentially has two states involved, and that would be where there's an emergency present. If you have a case where it is proven that mistreatment or abuse, and those, those terms are pretty broad, mistreatment or abuse has occurred of either the child and or that child's parent, the court can also obtain or exercise emergency jurisdiction under the UCCJEA. Yeah, and that rule makes sense. If a party appears in your court and you know there's been abuse or neglect, you have to have the authority to assume jurisdiction instead of just shrugging and sending the parties back to some state where they might not have a connection any longer. That's right, but assuming emergency jurisdiction is somewhat limited. Now think about this. If you are exercising emergency jurisdiction, you assumedly do not have other jurisdiction under the Act. So in other words, you're not the home state. You, you're not the issuing state, etc. So 19964 defines the type of abuse or neglect that might constitute an emergency that would allow you to exercise this jurisdiction. But more importantly, it puts a very specific limit on the length of your order and the circumstances under which that order will continue to survive having exercised emergency jurisdiction. So you can enter an emergency order that prevents the abuse from continuing and allows the party sufficient time to go back to the issuing state if there was a prior order. If there was no prior order, the judge exercising emergency jurisdiction can assume jurisdiction for a period of time that would allow the parties to initiate a case in the state that qualifies as the current home state. Tane, you and I both know sometimes people don't do what they're supposed to do. So you exercise emergency jurisdiction and they don't elect to go file a case in the what would otherwise be the home state. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? In the game of duck, duck, goose of jurisdiction, you are the goose. You are now the home state, even if you didn't technically qualify as such, if they don't go and follow through with the state that should have been yeah, so the home the, state. So if the parties never initiate a, ca- a case in the proper state, the court that has, has exercised the emergency jurisdiction becomes the home state under that rule, right? That's right. Now, a lot of these cases involve communication. 19.949 specifically says that the courts are required to confer when there is a question of jurisdiction. Yeah, these are kind of fun conversations when they happen. You call up a judge you don't know, you get to know each other a little bit, and then you decide whose domestic relations case this really is. Do you ever feel like you're playing a game of rock, paper, scissors? Like, I don't want it. You want it? No, I don't want it. Okay, rock, paper, scissors. Sometimes the first one to call not it is not the home state. But let's go through the the rules concerning this. Sure. Um, So to be clear, the court's don't have to confer if there's a prior order and it is proven that neither the child nor the parties live in the issuing state. But when it appears that there are two cases pending at the same time or where there is a prior order and one of the parties continues to reside in that issuing state, the courts have to confer. And and that makes sense. Yeah, exactly right. You don't want you have to conduct one of these conferences. You're going to first be expected to gather sufficient facts so you know the answer to those questions. 
So you're supposed to gather sufficient facts to determine where everyone has been living if there were prior orders. You, you don't necessarily come into the litigation just reading the pleadings and knowing that to be true or not. That's a really good point, because if you don't have that information, you really can't have a productive conversation with the other judge. And I'll just say, in many of these cases where I've had um, those conference requirements, I'll have my staff attorney go ahead and contact the other court and gather whatever pleadings or documents have been filed, or at least find out as much about what's been done in that other state, or even, for example, whether hearings are, are already scheduled to be held in that other jurisdiction, so that we'll know exactly where they are from a procedural standpoint as well. When I have one of these cases, I call the parties to court for a, a temporary hearing. I put them under oath, and then I go back to some point in time when I know something. In other words, if there's a prior order, I'm not going to go behind that prior order and try to determine who lived where or where the child, who, which party the child was with, because that's really counterproductive. You've got a court order that's raised judicata between these parties, a, a court exercise jurisdiction. Don't go back behind that. Now, if I don't have one of those and I have a particularly young child, then I will usually go back and I will say, okay, start at that child's birth and let's move forward because I want to know who they were living with, where they were living, et cetera. But I never go behind the date of a prior order. I then have them to testify to all of those facts that I'm going to need to talk to the judge from the other state. If there's a dispute, I'll look for some corroborating evidence as to where everybody had lived, like school records, things like that. But once I feel that I have sufficient information, I suspend the temporary hearing and then make arrangements to make that, uh, to speak with that other judge. Well, Wade, sometimes between the time that a prior order is issued and the time that you're having a hearing or the parties are appearing in front of you, a lot of time has passed. And uh, what do you do if the judge that issued the prior order has retired or is no longer serving as a judge in that jurisdiction? You know, I go back to that court and ask who I need to speak with. Every state is different in how they address custody matters. Just this last week, I've got a Florida custody matter in which a magistrate issued an order. A circuit court judge made, adopted the magistrate's order, but really the decision was made by the magistrate. But the judge who signed it was a circuit court judge, so I'm going back to the circuit court judge. I simply try to go back to that judge, that judge court, and if I can't figure it out, I'll go all the way back to the clerk's office of that court. Yeah, you know, the internet can be a wonderful thing. Um, when you have to conduct one of these hearings, you can usually get a lead on the clerk of court's office or the judge's office to contact right off the internet. And Tane, there's another requirement of these hearings that, frankly, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm confessing here, I haven't already done. Not because I was trying to ignore the statute, but because arranging these conferences can be incredibly difficult considering all the different schedules of judges and parties and lawyers the law requires that the parties be made aware of the conference and be allowed to participate. I've not always done that. Yeah, I'm going to have to admit, Wade, there have been a few times where I've spoken with the other judge because of the expediency of the matter, uh, because we needed to talk as soon as possible. And the courts also expect to have the conference taken down by a court reporter or make a written memorialization of that hearing. That's the one that I always do. It's just, frankly, it's just easier. Imagine court reporter trying to listen to the phone and listen to you, and you're trying to have pleasantries with the judge just to at least warm up a little bit. It's just awkward. So I usually just enter an order. I'll tell you one of the things that I've done in those cases, too, um, that I think makes sense to me and other judges I've suggested it to have usually agreed, and that is that 
Once the order is drafted from my court, I'll send it to them or to their law clerk to be reviewed. And frequently what we'll do is enter the order in both cases, the same order, and sometimes signed by both judges, either agreeing where jurisdiction lies or agreeing what's going to be done with respect to that case. And, and it's kind of interesting working with another judge in another jurisdiction on something like that. But it's also kind of fun. Tane, remember early in the podcast, I told you that this statute was organized a little strangely? Yes. So believe it or not, it's not organized just like we went through it. I came across a flow chart during my research and preparation for this podcast, which is something that Tane and I both spent a lot of time doing. And it's, I basically attached it to this outline, but then I used the Georgia statutes and put them in the case flow the, 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 so, so that you can watch. If I have a UCCJEA case, start here, go here, go here, go here, statute number, statute number, statute number, uh, as to each one of those levels. Well, Wade, where in the world would our listeners find such a thing? You could go to goodjudgepod.com. And for the Superior Court judges, I've also put it on sidebar. We need to copyright that. Note to self. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. But yeah, that flow chart is great. It takes you through the different scenarios under which you might have jurisdiction in a UCCJEA case. And it really looks like something I need to add to my trial notebook. Folks, that's what we have on the UCCJEA. You know that this podcast is never going to replace your own research, and we've not addressed each and every provision of the UCCJEA. It's really long. Some of it probably doesn't apply to you often. Some of it does. Please feel free to, to look at that as you go through and have a UCCJEA case. Yeah, as always, this uh, podcast hopefully will give you a good starting point when you find yourselves in one of these cases. Remember, the parties can waive venue, but they can't waive jurisdiction. The UCCJEA is addressed to jurisdiction and not to venue. And one more point, the UCCJEA tells different courts which court should handle the case, not how to handle the case. The substantive law of each of individual state applies as to how a custody determination should be made in the case. The UCCJEA only deals with jurisdiction. Georgia law would apply as to who should be getting custody, visitation, etc. That's right, Wade. That's the UCCJEA. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. <laughs> but seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcast. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell, and thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience, and the crowd goes wild. Ah!
Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.